Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. It's the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. I'm Anand Swami Nathan. And I'm Jenny Beck Esme. Hey, so how's it going, Jenny? Things are going well. You know, we're into the new year. It's really hot outside. People have started to shoot and stab each other a bit more, which is a little interesting. Yeah, I've seen the trauma tick up a bit. It was like 100 degrees today, which, you know, I know if you're in Texas, you're like, oh, 100 degrees, no big deal. That's a nice December. But, you know, we don't like it that hot here. <laughs> we really don't. No, I, do, I don't. I mean, I'm from Minnesota, as you know. So I do not like 100 degrees at all, yeah. ever. Yeah. Anyway. And, uh, you know, the trauma numbers like the uh, hot weather, but nobody else really enjoys it. So no. hopefully we'll get a little bit of a cooling off and we won't have so much of that. But, uh, you know, it has been quite busy, but, you know, it's good for training, right? It is good for training. All right. So uh, what is it that we're going to actually, I think the topic today is a good segue from the hot and violent streets of New York City. So what, people what losing their to... mind in the heat. Absolutely. So, you know, we had a great talk last week from Ruben Strayer talking about management of the acutely agitated patient. And we actually both saw him give this talk in smack in Dublin. And it was called Disruption, Danger, and Dropiridol, Emergency Management of the Agitated Patient. And we liked it so much there that we asked him to give it again at our residency. So, you know, this is really one of my favorite plenaries from the SMAC conference. And so why not let him educate our residents with the same content? Exactly. I thought Ruben's talk at SMAC was fantastic. And people out there will be able to hear it on the SMAC podcast eventually, I'm sure. He has such a straightforward and engaging presentation style. And um, obviously, sedation of the agitated patient is a topic that people really like. So everyone was talking about his talk all day at SMAC. Yeah, absolutely. So let's drop into the topic. And obviously, we don't want to play Ruben's audio because we want to save that for the SMAC podcast. So we're just going to sort of highlight some of the big take-homes from what he talked about. Now, he talks about three flavors of the agitated patient. I like this way of approaching it. So there's the agitated but cooperative patient, the disruptive without danger, and the excited delirium. And of course, the last one's the one that we get really worked up about. Now, the agitated but cooperative patient, you know, you're not too worried about them. They don't really have any serious medical condition. And the truth is that they're actually pretty suggestible. They'll be redirected. They actually respond pretty well to a babysitter or, as Ruben says, a turkey sandwich. A little bit of kindness probably goes a long way here. Now, when I think about this patient, I often think about sort of that schizophrenic patient who's been off of their medications for maybe a week or a couple of days. And again, they can be redirected and simply putting somebody on them to watch them closely is management enough. So next is the disruptive without danger. And this is usually that young, intoxicated patient who comes in on a Friday or Saturday night. They're loud, they're obnoxious, but you doubt that there's anything actually dangerous going on with them, like an intracranial bleed. These patients typically just need to sleep off their intoxication, and sometimes, sometimes, we need to facilitate that process. We don't want to discharge them because they don't have a stable gait, and we don't want them to hurt themselves. So, Swami, how do you manage these patients? So the key to me for these patients is putting them to sleep, as you said. In these cases, we can sacrifice a bit of speed for safety. They can occupy a ton of your time and efforts while sick patients languish in the department, so I don't want the sedation to take too long either. Now, Ruben offered one of the typical cocktails that we often see used, which is 5 to 10 milligrams of haloperidol and 2 milligrams of lorazepam. Now, haloperidol does have some potential side effects like akathisia, dyskinesia, and those are relatively uncommon. 
There are other side effects from haloperidol as well. It can potentially prolong your QTC, although the prolongation of that in a clinical setting hasn't really come to bear too much. It also does lower the seizure threshold, so something else to think about. Now, lorazepam causes respiratory depression. It can cause hypotension. But again, with a dose of one to two milligrams, that is relatively uncommon. Now, check out our blog post on parenteral benzodiazepines from about a month ago if you want to see a little bit more information on that particular part of this. But Swami, you didn't mention Rubit's favorite drug for this, droperidol. Yeah, of course, droperidol. I mean, it's right in the title <laughs> of his talk, right? So Rubin has a considerable amount of experience with this drug, as do many of our international colleagues. But I, unfortunately, do not. This wasn't the preferred agent when I trained. And now that I want to use it, I simply can't get it in the United States. It, it isn't being produced. It's not being manufactured, so you can't access it. There's extensive experience with this drug and multiple publications that tout its safety. A recent publication in Annals of Emergency Medicine by Calver et al., the safety and effectiveness of droperidol for sedation of acute behavioral disturbance in the ED, enrolled over 1,000 patients and demonstrated good safety in high-dose droperidol doses. I think the host of literature seems to support its use. Yeah, if you've got this drug and you're comfortable using it, it's clearly an option. If you had droperidol available, would you use it? Does the black box for the QT prolongation worry you at all? It doesn't really worry me that much. You know, when you look deeper into this, there's a lot of conspiracy theories over how this popped up, but it doesn't seem like the, again, the clinical effects of that QT prolong prolongation really come out. So again, there's a host of safety data on this, lots of articles looking at it, and Ruben points out that a lot of common medications that we use, things like NSAIDs, clopidogrel, metronidazole, and of course, Haldol, as we mentioned earlier, all have a warning that it could prolong the QT. Now, another good option, aside from the haloperidol and the razepam, aside from the droperidol, is using midazolam. It's a rapid onset agent, it can be delivered intramuscularly, and it has been shown to get rapid control in these situations. The issues with midazolam are hypoventilation, hypotension, and some patients do have benzo resistance. The onset is going to be faster than haloperidol, but there's a narrower therapeutic window. Typically, I'd use five to 10 milligrams of midazolam intramuscularly, and these patients should be closely monitored once you've given it to watch for any respiratory depression. Absolutely, so just to review, the disruptive patient where you don't think they pose an immediate threat to you, your staff, or even to themselves, and you also think they're unlikely to be harboring any significant disease, can be really managed with a number of different agents, including midazolam, 5 to 10 milligrams IM, haloperidol, 5 to 10 milligrams IM with or without lorazepam, and if you've got it, dropiridol, 5 to 10 milligrams IM. Now let's get back to the excited delirium patient. Again, the one that really gets us worried. Right. These patients scare us for a number of reasons. They're delirious and they're dangerous. That danger is to themselves, to others around them, including staff, patients, security, and they actually may be harboring a dangerous disease process or diagnosis. Ruben differentiates these patients from the disruptive patient we just spoke about based on a number of behaviors. The excited delirium patient is screaming and thrashing. They have a disregard for pain and fatigue, and they can't really engage you in any kind of conversation because they've got a fluctuating sensorium, a fluctuating mental status, and they're going to have altered vital signs as well. Ruben discusses a four-step approach to taking care of these patients that gives us a good structure. 
The overarching message here is that you must rapidly control the patient in a manner that is safe to you, your staff, and the patient. Rapid control will allow you to proceed with your assessment and figure out what's wrong with the patient. So step one, make sure you have adequate force. This means getting security involved and numbers matter. These patients can exhibit superhuman strength due to drugs, their endogenous catecholamines, or simply the fact that they're immune to pain. Make sure it's safe to approach the patient. When you've got the bodies, you can hold the patient down and put on your physical restraints. Step two, and this is a bit of a new one for me, is to place the patient on a non-rebreather face mask with high flow oxygen. This acts to control the patient spitting on you and your staff, and of course supplies them with oxygen. Now, hypoxia can be a common cause of agitated delirium, and it seems pretty silly to miss this when it's easily remedied. The problem is that if the patient's agitated, you may not be able to obtain an oxygen saturation while you're trying to restrain them, so just go ahead and put the mask on. Yeah, this is a relatively new one to me too, and I love it. The nice thing is that it also prevents or at least limits people placing their hands, arms, or other body parts over the patient's mouth and nose while they're holding the patient down. So it helps to ensure that the patient's orifices are included and they stay safe. So step three is to make sure your patient is not in any dangerous restraint holds or positions. Often a forearm or a knee is kind of driven into the patient's chest, neck, or back if the patient is in a prone position. And patients occasionally are brought in prone in kind of a hog-tie position. All of these positions increase the risk that the patient has compression of their chest or airway. Finally, after you've done all of those three things, step four calls for appropriate chemical restraint. Physical restraints are not the answer. You may have to use these to facilitate you giving chemical restraint, but they really need to be removed as soon as possible. The patient's going to continue to fight if they're in physical restraints. And with that superhuman strength that you described, they're often going to escape. I remember when I was an intern, I saw a patient who was probably on LSD. He never really admitted to it, but he rocked himself off of the bed onto the floor and he dragged the stretcher halfway across oh the God. emergency department before six of us were able to restrain him. It was absolutely incredible. That's amazing. Now with that psychomotor agitation and being restrained, what's going to happen is the patient's going to become hyperthermic. As they become hyperthermic, they're going to have sort of more of that psychomotor agitation to the point where they can even seize. And this is really going to lead to a death spiral. Again, remember that we not only want the patient sedated, but sedated rapidly and safely so we can continue with our medical assessment. So in this case, Ruben is calling for ketamine, four to six milligrams per kilogram IM. Why ketamine? Well, it works quickly. There's not much of an issue with cross tolerance as you can see with benzos, and it does a good job of preserving airway reflexes. Why IM? Wouldn't IV be faster, Swami? Well, there's a couple of reasons to avoid the IV here. Firstly, trying to place an IV in a severely agitated patient is very difficult, and you expose yourself and your staff to a high risk of a needle stick. Secondly, mucking around and trying to start an IV is going to delay sedation. Ketamine works really rapidly intramuscularly. If you're going to use ketamine, the patient needs to have procedural sedation type monitoring in place. So cardiac monitor, O2 saturation, frequent blood pressures, end tidal CO2, and close physician monitoring. This isn't really an issue since these patients are potentially pretty sick and should be getting all of this regardless. Once the patient starts to settle down, loosen those restraints. Swami, I know a lot of our faculty don't use ketamine here, but we'll do escalating benzo doses. What do you like to do? So my practice and experience with ketamine is actually fairly limited. 
the truth is that you don't see a lot of these excited delirium patients that need that rapid restraint. These are not the every week or every weekend patient that's coming in. We see them maybe a couple of times a year per provider. So when I have done this, I usually will do five milligrams per kilogram intramuscularly, and these patients go down very quickly in a very safe fashion, very easily controlled. Now, that being said, I have used all of these other agents in these circumstances as well. And the reason I end up coming back to ketamine is because I find escalating doses of benzodiazepines often aren't that effective. So I've seen patients given 20, 30, 40, 50, even 60 milligrams of midazolam before they start to have any sedation. And in some of those cases, they start to have respiratory depression before they really have control of that agitated circumstance. So I do like using ketamine. It really has to be used in these choice circumstances where you need the patient down quickly, you need them down safely, and I think ketamine is a great choice. Now, at this point, you have a patient and a situation that's a little more controlled, and you have to remember that your job's not even half done at this point. What you have to do now is proceed with a full assessment to figure out what's going on. Start with your vital signs and address simple things like hyperthermia, hypoglycemia, hypoxia, and hypercarbia. From here, move on to a full assessment looking for things like intracranial bleeding, infections, especially CNS, electrolyte abnormalities, thyrotoxicosis, toxic ingestions or withdrawal, and of course, sepsis. Don't forget about trauma as a primary cause of the excited delirium, as well as trauma that results from their excited delirium. All right, Jenny, how about you hit us with some take-home points? Of course. So first, disruptive patients who aren't dangerous to themselves or others usually just need to sleep for a while in the emergency department. For these patients, we just want to safely help them sleep. A good cocktail for their sedation is the classic 5 and 2, or 5 milligrams or even 10 milligrams of haloperidol IM, plus 2 milligrams of lorazepam IM. If terperidol is an option for you where you practice, you can simply use 5 to 10 milligrams of terperidol IM. Now second, the really dangerous patients are those with an excited delirium. They are difficult to control, making them a physical threat to themselves and others. And additionally, they often can be harboring a severe underlying illness. These patients need to go down quickly. This can be done with that great four-step process. First, have a sufficient number of bodies around for physical support. Second, place the patient on a non-rebreather supplemental oxygen. This corrects any hypoxia and protects the staff from spitting and biting and keeps the staff from placing their hands over the nose or mouth of the patient. Third, protect the patient from any dangerous restraint positions. And fourth, call for your chemical sedation. Here you can use four to six milligrams per kilogram IM of ketamine. Don't bother mucking around with an IV until the patient is safely sedated. If you aren't familiar with ketamine, a good alternative from the benzo family is midazolam as it has a fairly rapid onset of action. And then the last take home point is that after your agitated patient is safely restrained, be sure to do a thorough medical and trauma evaluation to make sure to identify any underlying illness or injury that could have contributed to their delirium. It's a real whirlwind tour of the agitated patient, but I think it's a lot of messages that you can take with you to work tomorrow to improve control of these patients so that you can get them taken care of. We'll include a couple of summary slides from Ruben's presentation in the show notes as well. All right, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net. We've got a ton of great core content, emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up this Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Visit us on Facebook and like us if you like the site and follow us on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks and see you all next week.